You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello, and welcome to Domecast. My name's Andy Speck. I'm here with Don Vaughn and Will Doran. Uh, we're coming to you live from uh, downtown Raleigh in the offices of the News and Observer. And um, this week we have a lot to catch you up on. Uh, a couple of big-time Republicans visited the state late last week. Uh, there are new developments in redistricting and um, gerrymandering, as there almost always are, and uh, much, much more from the legislature. Uh, but let's start with Don, who was at Elon University on Friday, I believe, where Nikki Haley, uh, former South Carolina governor, uh, was speaking. Um, she's been rumored to be a presidential candidate for quite some time now. What did she say at Elon? What was she here for? So she spoke on uh, late Friday afternoon um, at their um, convoca- or convocation or Founders Day, a big ceremonial um, event that they had in one of the arenas there. And she didn't do any sort of media interviews. What she did was give a, kind of a short speech, uh, just sort of overall about her job um, as UN ambassador. And then she took questions um, that were pre-submitted um, and I assume vetted by um, Elon students that Aldona Voss, the old uh, DHHS secretary here, um, asked her. And that was the only time that she mentioned her former boss, Trump, um, who she, um, she left office this past fall. What makes you think they were pre-submitted? Were they softball questions? Uh, well, the fact that they wouldn't take any media questions. Uh, I see. And that, um, you know, she was too busy, um, according to the university, to talk with us. Um, and, well, yeah, you know, it was, she was a Republican, um, prominent Republican, being asked questions by another prominent Republican who is also a major donor to Elon. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they chose what the questions were. Um, but what I thought was interesting is she talked about Russia is not our friend and how, not that people think that, but maybe some do, um, that hold certain offices. And she said that what they do is create chaos. And she talked about um, uh, Russian interference in our elections. And she also said that she never had any conflicts with Trump, that um, whenever there was something she wanted to tell him, he heard her out, and that they didn't have any conflicts. So um, that was... What, what she conveyed. I taught most of the audience was probably uh, maybe retirement age or so. So I assume alumni. It was also the beginning of Parents Weekend, uh, but there were more, probably more grandparent age of the students. So I caught a couple of Elon students afterwards and asked them. This is all their first presidential election. They're all, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And they kind of thought, oh, well, yeah, she's interesting and I want to learn more about her. And I liked what she said, and sure, maybe I'd vote for her in the future, and it'd be nice to have a woman president. That's mm-hmm. what the students told me. Um, what was the most interesting thing it. she said while she was here? I think the fact that she talked about, she talked about yeah, human rights abuses and, and something about, uh, she didn't talk about South Carolina at all. I think yeah, she talked about being blessed a lot, and how everybody is blessed, and it's a blessing to live in the United States. Mm-hmm. But I really thought the Russian interference and talking about the chaos that they cause um, and the Facebook, you know, fooling people on Facebook and everything. I thought that was interesting that 
Um, mm. And she kind of did that on her own. There wasn't a very specific question mentioned about it, but that was um, that was one of her answers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Seems like she got a pretty warm reception. Is that safe? To oh, say? for sure. Yeah, okay. I mean it's a big formal university event. You know, it wasn't a um, you know I can't rally. She has a book. You know, and and she didn't. I don't think she actually talked about her book at all, but she that's what she's doing. And obviously, she's spending a lot more time in South Carolina, which she just moved back to um, because, again, people are uh, speculating that, that mm-hmm. she'll run for some sort of office. And hey, maybe we'll see her again soon if she decides to run or jump on the ticket. Yeah, it's interesting that she didn't want to say anything negative about Trump. Mm-hmm. So um, as far as the party goes, she's in line with the overall party support of him. Right. Well, now on to a far less popular Republican, uh, Tom Tillis. Senator Tom Tillis was at Fort Bragg uh, last week, and Will, you were there, and he was there to address uh, what exactly? He was there to address uh, base housing issues at Fort Bragg. The Army did a big study earlier this year that found that basically of all of the Army bases in the entire country, Fort Bragg has the worst housing conditions. Mm -hmm. It's infested with mold, lead, all sorts of issues, and so... He went and held a town hall and spoke there about probably 150 to 200 soldiers and their families and attendants who came out to, to voice their, their issues with basically what was going on uh, with their housing um, and kind of tied up in all of this is his vote or his, his uh, visit came just a couple of days after he voted uh, to essentially move forward with cutting military funding to help President Trump. Uh, pay for building a wall down on the southern border. Was that mentioned uh, at all? Yes, it was. Um, so it's no longer uh, Mexico is going to pay for the wall. It is now the military is going to pay for the wall. Uh, um, doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> no, not quite as good of a campaign promise. Um, and a woman stood up and asked Tillis point blank, you know, how can we trust you to fight for us for you know better housing conditions if you know, we see you up in D.C. cutting funding for the military. And Tillis responded, and this is true, that none of the funding that he voted to cut would have gone towards housing anyways. Um, it would have gone towards other things um, like uh, some storage things out at Camp Seymour Johnson, an ambulatory care medical center at Camp Lejeune, other issues like that. Um, and so he, he defended himself that way, said, you know, look, none of that money was for housing, it was all for other projects. And he said that, you know, he's also separately fighting to basically get more funding for housing. Um, did, so, it, did it have the feel of a campaign event, or was it something that was pre-scheduled, do you know? Um, it wasn't really a campaign rally, you know? I mean, it was just, you know, they had everyone come in and sit down, and he came in and just kind of opened it up for questions for around an hour. It just told people, I'm here to basically hear you complain about mm-hmm. everything that's going on. Um, he kind of alluded to having helped a couple of families with some issues uh, that they've had uh, with it's actually the government isn't the one who runs the housing even though it's on base at a military base it's actually now run by a private contractor and everyone was saying that things have gotten much much worse since it got privatized a few years ago uh, um, yeah. and so he was saying uh, that you know basically his office is you know interested in you know potentially strengthening some of the laws uh, to you know increase accountability for this private contractor and he you know had a couple of his staffers who were at the meeting stand up and wave to everybody and he told the people who were there you know hey go go talk to them afterwards you know about you know seeing what we can do to help you out so isn't Fort Bragg one of the biggest army bases in the country 
Yeah, biggest military base of any kind, pretty much in the world. There's well over 100,000 people there. I'm not sure how many live on base. I think it's probably more than 100,000 live on base. But, I mean, if it were, if Fort Bragg were a city, it would be one of the biggest cities in the state. Wow. And the, the kind of issues they're facing with housing, you mentioned mold and other things like that. That's what people are upset mm-hmm. about? Yeah, well, you know, if you remember the past two to three years of, uh, you know, news coverage about hurricanes mm-hmm. uh, here in North Carolina, Cumberland County and Fayetteville have been hit really hard with flooding. Mm-hmm. And, obviously, Fort Bragg has not been spared. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right there. Um, so... You know, you've had people, you know, say that they've been complaining for months about moldy carpet, uh, making them sick, making their kids sick. People are saying some of their friends uh, and, you know, squad mates in the military have had to basically cut their military career short because of respiratory issues that were caused by all this mold there. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a huge deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a very big deal. I mean, people were very angry um, wow. and lots of complaints about, you know, uh, months spent with just hearing nothing from the company and they mentioned that you know as soon as uh, I think the day that Tillis announced that he was coming to Bragg to have this uh, talk the company suddenly their handyman were everywhere trying to fix stuff up at the last second and get things spruced up before before the senator got to base um, funny how that works yeah so you know I mean there, there's an instance of him you know kind of using the the power of his office to, to make some change happen um, I think people should know too that army uh, housing isn't fancy. I lived at Fort Bragg as a kid, and the older the officer, the higher ranking officer's housing, uh, like the colonel houses are really nice, lieutenant colonel houses are really nice, but um, for even officers, not even enlisted, you're looking at kind of like a ranch duplex. And my dad was a major when we lived there, but the major housing was overcrowded, so we lived in captain's housing, which was a ranch duplex, which was fun from a kid point of view, but uh, it's not exactly luxury anyway, so if you're living in, you know, basically, again, like government, you know, housing, then uh, any sort of mold or any other problem is, makes it that much less a- appealing. Yeah, yeah. I talked to one woman who, uh, she said her husband's a first sergeant in the 3rd Special Forces Group, which is, there's a lot of special forces at Bragg, and mm-hmm. she said that while he was deployed, uh, you know, she had been complaining for months and months and months, they have four young kids, about all the mold in their house. And instead of coming to fix it, the company that runs the housing actually called his chain of command and got some of his superiors to come out to her house and tell her to basically stop complaining. Oh, wow. Um, but she said, to their credit, they took her side and started yelling at the company and are like, are you serious? You're making our guy's family live in this stuff? And she said then after that happened, they still never came and fixed it, but they at least never tried to get her husband in trouble with, her bosses, with his bosses again. Well, then you move again, too, because nobody lives there more than, like, one or two years anyway. Right, right. There are a lot of people who there who are saying, you know, I've been at Fort Bragg three times, and, you know, this is by far the worst it's ever been. So the company, for its part, has said that it's hearing these concerns and, you know, trying to make things better. Um, but really the big news was that, unlike Nikki Haley, uh, Tillis did take questions from the media afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, to his credit, you know, this happened, you know, kind of right when the whole... Uh, transcript of President Trump's phone call with that uh, with the Ukrainian president came out right when the whole whistleblower thing was really first blowing up and you know there were a lot of members of Congress who were kind of dodging questions up in DC and trying not to go on the record but to Tillis's credit he gave a probably a 10 minute long press conference with the media afterwards where he took questions and you know complained to us a little bit that we were only asking about impeachment and not more about, you know, the housing issues that he was there to talk about. But he answered the impeachment questions. Um, 
he said, and obviously this this was a week ago today mm-hmm. that he was there, so a lot has changed since then. You know, we've now seen uh, text messages got released from a bunch of State Department officials about all this stuff. Uh, since then, Trump has gone uh, out and also put pressure on uh the communist dictatorship in China to launch its own investigation into uh, Joe Biden and his family. And he did that on uh, camera. Uh, yeah. In front of everyone to see. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's been a lot, obviously, that's changed since Tillis gave this press conference. And, you know, we haven't had another press conference with him since then. Uh, but a week ago, he was saying basically that there was nothing in that transcript of that call between Trump and the Ukrainian president that worried him at all. Um, and he said essentially that... Uh, you know, Democrats are going to have to come up with a lot more evidence for him to to be concerned about it. He said, you know, obviously if the Democrats do decide to impeach, it will go to the Senate and he's willing to hear the evidence and, you know, see what happens. But basically he said that what, what he saw just in that transcript, he didn't think was enough evidence to, mm-hmm. to remove the president from office. Well, it'll be interesting to watch him because he's up for election next year too. Uh, and he has a primary challenger and Garland Tucker, um, who is still there, um, nipping at his heels occasionally. And you have two Democrats, Cal Cunningham out in Charlotte and then Erica Smith. Um, I forget what district she's from, but she's a legislator here in Raleigh, uh, all trying to unseat him. Um, Speaking of seats, there are new developments in uh, our congressional districts, aren't there? There's another lawsuit. There are. That that? also happened last Friday. It was a very busy Friday. So for anyone who uh, who may may have missed some of that stuff because you were you know getting off work a little bit early uh, as we all like to do on Fridays, uh, <laughs> a lot going on. Yeah, so a new redistricting lawsuit dropped, backed by the same group uh, that funded the last redistricting lawsuit that we had that got the state legislative lines overturned. Uh, it's uh, Eric Holder's group, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, he obviously was the attorney general under Barack Obama. Um, and now has this kind of pro-Democrat redistricting group that you know goes around the country and sues over lines and that have been drawn by Republicans to give Republicans what they deem an unfair advantage. Mm-hmm. So they won the previous lawsuit over the state legislative lines, and then now have sued over our congressional lines. People will remember the congressional lines were upheld by the Supreme Court in June which the Supreme Court basically said, look, we don't like gerrymandering. It's kind of gross, but it's not up to the courts to do anything about it. Partisan gerrymandering, at least. Racial gerrymandering, yes, the courts can step in and protect the rights of racial minorities. But they said for just purely partisan gain, that's not the job of the federal court system. And they said either it needs to be up to Congress or it needs to be up to the states. So now they're filing essentially the same lawsuit here in the state, in state court. Um, It'll be interesting to see how this goes because lawsuits take a long time. Mm -hmm. And the 2020 elections, the primaries are in March. Candidate filing starts in December. That's just two months away. And even if this lawsuit is really expedited, it's hard to imagine seeing a ruling, you know, by, by the time for these, so... Hasn't that happened before, too, in North Carolina, where judges essentially threw out uh, districts, but it was so close to the election that they didn't order them redrawn? Yes, that it was with these same maps, the congressional maps. They, yeah. uh, they won at a lower court, um, 
in uh, right before the 2018 elections, but it was so close to the 2018 elections that everybody agreed it would just be too chaotic to to basically cancel the elections, move them back, have them at a different date. Um, that basically it would be that would be even worse for democracy. Essentially, was what everybody decided in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was even a case where you had the ruling, you know, before the elections began. Mm-hmm. This one, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see if you know the lawsuit can even can even finish by the time the the elections are supposed to start. So. Right. And then after 2020, there are going to be people uh, tasked with drawing new lines anyway. Right. And then and, 2021, and, we're going to start the whole process over again. Right. Uh, so it'll be interesting to, to watch how it goes. Um, Knowing that, what do you think the point is from holders? Because some people might say, might say it's a, you know, a moot point to try to tackle it now with so little time left. Well, they probably want to be on the record that they oppose this thing, and you know, obviously they won the last lawsuit, and they're using essentially the exact same legal arguments that they used against the state lines. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the math could be different with the state lines versus the congressional lines. You know, some of the nuances could be different, but the kind of the broad legal arguments they're using are exactly the same as the ones that they were successful mm-hmm. with the last time. So, I think they definitely want to go on record, you know, saying that they oppose these maps and. Who knows, maybe they want to try to get the 2020 elections pushed back a little bit, uh, at least for, for Congress. Would it be possible, let's say, that they get a favorable ruling but not in time for the 2020 election, would it be possible for a judge or someone else uh, to order um, the, legislate, the legislature to consider new factors or to draw them in a different fashion next time? Is that For know? the 2021 round of redistricting? Right. That would be pretty tricky um, because this lawsuit is obviously only challenging the current maps. Um, and, I mean, obviously, you know, judges can often do pretty much whatever they want to do. Uh, but I would imagine if you did see something like what you just suggested, then that would definitely get appealed uh, by the legislature because, you know, they the, the Constitution says the legislature gets to draw the maps and has pretty much no other rules. Right. <laughs> for them uh, so and then you know in the meantime there's you know we keep hearing about maybe we're going to see a constitutional amendment here in North Carolina on the 2020 ballot for some sort of independent redistricting commission to kind of change mm-hmm. the rules that the state has for, for all of this um, but we've seen a few filed in the legislature and none of them have really gone forward at all mm-hmm. and uh, we just heard uh, I think earlier this week, Senator Phil Berger said that they plan to uh, to basically be gone at the end of this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, October fir- 31st is the, the last day that lo- the General Assembly plans to, to be here mm-hmm. uh, until, I guess, at least after Christmas. Wow. Way to steal um, Dawn's thunder. She was going to talk about that. <laughs> Sorry, Dawn. Dawn, did I get any of that wrong? I'm here for all holiday discussions. <laughs> right. And so they have... They have a lot left to do. They governor the governor's veto of the Republican authored budget, state budget, is still intact. The House overrode it famously on nine uh, eleven, but the Senate hasn't done anything. What's next? What did Berger say this week? Is it going to happen? Oh, what is next? I don't know. It's the roller coaster fun of uh, state government. Uh, well, he. The good thing is at the beginning of the week, Berger held a press conference, um, which was interestingly timed. It was at the same time as an informal uh, hearing that the Democrats were having about Medicaid expansion, um, which was obviously intentional. 
Uh, so anyway, Berger's uh, press conference was telling everybody what's going on, that there's more mini budgets with all, again, non-controversial items, nothing with raises, um, that those would be rolled out while um, the budget, um, just the standoff drags on for now. And basically, like, he's not going to have the override vote in the Senate until they know they can do it. Um, it'll be a little bit different than the House. Uh, once the requirements of the rules are 24 hours notice to the minority leader, which is Senator Blue, and Berger said that he's going to stick to that, and he that was part of um, his press conference announcement that um, either vote or don't, like you're all going to know about it. It's not going to be a setup like the House, probably. Uh, there technically, what he could do is give 24 hours notice to the Democrats that they are going to consider, the language is consider, consideration um, of the override, and then they could decide not to call it, and then give 24 hours notice, and then do that day after day. So technically, that is something that could happen, but not in the way of the House, I don't think. Um, so maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be the week after next week, um, but so, it's all going to wrap up by Halloween when the burgers hand out a mixed variety of candy for trick-or-treaters. It sounds like you're not detecting any tricks up his sleeve so much as maybe he'll get the numbers and he'll just hold a vote someday. Well, um... He being Senate leader of the Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Democrats are like, oh, he's up to something, you know, and the Republicans are, no. I mean, it's just how it works, like, uh, party-wise. But I, I, I do think the Senate is different than the House, um, unless I've also been snowed, um, and that it will be more, um, it's not going to be the crazy surprise thing. But the other thing is, you don't have to pull anything, because you don't really need that many votes. You need mm -hmm. just one, once um, Bishop's replacement is in, um, you just need um, one Democrat to vote with all the Republicans, and that supermajority shifts depending on who's in the room at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, there are four Democrats that voted for the budget the last time, so maybe they will again. Uh, maybe they won't, but they don't even need that many. Um, so it could be next week. It could be could be the week after. Potentially, it could not even be October. Let's hope that it is. Uh, but Berger said, regardless, come Halloween, um, the Senate's ready to go home. And he said that he rolled out this rumor again, which no one will confirm or substantiate or say exactly who it was, that Democrats who might vote Republicans are being threatened with being primaried, which means the party putting forth um, a, an opponent in your own, in your own party against you. Um, and, you know, I asked Berger, well, who's been primaried? You know, he's like, oh, I've heard it from multiple people. And then you ask the Democrats, you know, someone threatening you with primary. No, nobody's doing this. Um, so that's just coming from the Republican side that they're saying that this is something that's happening and no Democrats are, are confirming that they have been threatened with being primaried in order to stand with Cooper um, for the budget. Of course, if you're being threatened with a primary, you're not exactly going to go around spouting that, you know. No, of course not, right? <laughs> and so Berger made that, he said, yeah. you know, well, maybe we'll come back after, you know, December filing is done, which is December 2nd, I believe it is, is when filing starts for every single person in the General Assembly is up for election, re-election um, next year. So Berger said maybe they won't be so worried about it um, once they get through that. Um, so things could drag out a lot longer. Um, 
if you wanted to have more simple government that gets things done faster, it would just be to hold the override vote and get it done and let this budget that started July 1st um, going instead of all these mini budgets, which are just the same things that are already in the budget. Um, but there's also arguments over teacher raises. It's not just Medicaid expansion for standoff. Well, right. And you mentioned the budget and you mentioned Medicaid expansion this week. You know, it seems like the House Republicans have been trying to put forth some sort of compromise, but Berger came out and said he's not even interested in that. Yeah, Berger's like, no, nope. He said that, you know, he's like, oh, I'll have to consult with the caucus, but I don't support it. He thinks the House Republicans' Medicaid expansion compromise, which they've referred to as Carolina Cares, which Representative Donnie Lambeth is, um, the main sponsor and kind of the pitch man for it. And, you know, Lambeth said during the health committee uh, meeting and, and to reporters after that, you know, he's trying to convince um, conservatives to support this. And they'll like, they'll say, no, I don't want Medicaid expansion. He'll say, no, but this compromise has um, a work requirement and a 2% premium and it'll help, you know, rural health care. And then they like the sound of that. Um, the Democrats don't like the sound of that because they don't want work requirements or premiums, and Burr doesn't want any of it at all. Mm. So, you know, is it going to go anywhere? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, if the budget is overridden, there is something in there about a special session just on health care, but it's not like they're going to pass Medicaid expansion during that if they can't do this now. Um, so that's that's where things are, and then. We got a letter this week about um, these uh, rural Republican um, majority county commissioners who want that Medicaid expansion compromise and aren't happy mm-hmm. with Berger. And there was some letter back and forth. Andy, if you want to. Right. We uh, got our hands on a letter from Graham County commissioners. And Graham County is out far, far out west past Asheville. Um, and on that board of commissioners, there are four Republicans and one Democrat. And uh, the brief version of events was uh, they passed a resolution saying they supported Medicaid expansion. Berger sent them a letter. The Republican compromise right. Medicaid expansion, right? right. Not the, Cooper's. The compromise, right. Uh, right. And so uh, the commissioners support the compromise Medicaid expansion. Berger sent them a letter saying, implying that they were uh, given poor, bad information about. Uh, just what Medicaid expansion entails and things like that. And the uh, safe to say the commissioners in Graham County didn't appreciate that too much, the implication that they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, so they mailed back a what, two or three page letter mm-hmm. saying, do you know, um, Senator, Senator, <laughs> do you know, Senator, what our poverty rate is in this town? Do you know, Senator, the number of uh, jobs and industries that have left this county? Uh, very uh, tense exchange even though it wasn't verbal it was definitely you could mm-hmm. you could feel the, the awkwardness and the tension uh reading this letter um so there are definitely people uh in, republicans included uh interested in getting some sort of health care coverage even if uh if it means through the federal government spending or through state spending uh, so that was interesting to watch whether it'll make a difference who knows um it sounds like we could leave the legislators could leave Raleigh on October 31st and mm-hmm. without Medicaid expansion and without a you know budget override. So we'll see. Uh, with that, we'll take a break and come back with headliners of the week. 
Headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back. Uh, my name's Andy at the NNO, and I'm here with Headliner of the Week. Uh, Will, what's your uh, nomination? I am going to go with the Greg Lindbergh scandal, uh, the scandal that keeps on giving or taking away, uh, depending on your perspective here. Uh, two pretty major developments in it uh, this week. The biggest local connection, obviously, was that uh, Robin Hayes, former U.S. Congressman and uh, Chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, uh, pled guilty uh, to a charge of lying to federal investigators uh, while they were uh, investigating Lindbergh, who's a big uh, businessman, insurance salesman based in Durham, uh, has a massive conglomerate of various insurance companies. Um, he was being investigated for attempting to bribe uh, North Carolina Insurance Commissioner Mike Causey and basically trying to funnel some of his bribes as campaign donations or just other sorts of donations through the Republican Party, uh, which obviously Hayes was in charge of. Um, the bribery issues haven't really been settled yet. Uh, Lindbergh says that uh, a couple years ago, the Supreme Court essentially made a lot of his conduct legal in a pretty high-profile case involving uh, Bob McDonald. If, if uh, our listeners remember that, uh, critics of that said it basically legalized uh, political bribery. Lindbergh points to that case and says, like, look, you know, the Supreme Court said, like, all this stuff I was doing is above board. It, you know, it does not count. Uh, so that still hasn't gone to trial. He is fighting that. Um, but Hayes pled guilty to this charge of lying to investigators and... Our colleague Jim Morrill in Charlotte has been following this case because it's happening mm -hmm. uh, in the federal courthouse in Charlotte. Um, and it looks like essentially the, the way that this guilty plea went down and the way that you know uh, Hayes might get off light in sentencing is that he could potentially flip um, and be willing to testify for prosecution uh, against Lindbergh in this bribery case. Um, so that's kind of where that is at the moment, um, you know, kind of, I mean, obviously it's a huge deal, you know, whenever a former congressman state, you know, head of the state Republican Party, you know, pleads guilty to a crime, uh, but it's not over yet. You know, there's still, there's still more to go in this case, uh, you know, as, as they kind of try to nail down these, these bribery charges and see if that's going to stick or if Lindbergh will be able to walk, um. In the meantime, the Wall Street Journal had a huge story on Lindbergh this week. It was insane. I highly suggest anyone who's even mildly interested in politics, which if you've made it you know, half an hour into our podcast, you probably are, <laughs> to go read this story. It talks about uh, how Lindbergh, um, I, believe, I believe everything described was after his divorce um, recently, um, but had basically a number of girlfriends or women that he had crushes on and was interested in them being his girlfriend uh, all around the country that he also had his private security guards uh, tailing. They would follow them. Sometimes they would put GPS trackers on their cars. Uh, one time he rented an apartment for one of his private security guys across the hallway from one of the women that he was interested in so that he could keep tabs on her they would like compile dossiers on other men that the women were sometimes so seen a stalker. with. Uh, 
Uh, he he has a PR uh, firm who defended his actions, saying that he is a very wealthy person and it's totally normal for him to want Stop. to make sure that anyone he is romantically involved in is uh, you know doesn't have a assorted past or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it is obviously to the naked eye pretty disturbing behavior. Um, and and also just the amount of money that he was dropping on uh, uh, the, well, his security guards just called them interests uh, on his interest, according to this Wall Street Journal. Uh, apparently one woman he met after he paid, uh, I think the quote was a couple hundred thousand dollars to a matchmaking agency in Chicago to, uh, to get matched up with somebody. And then after he met her, he then started paying a $90,000 per month rent for her to live in this penthouse in New York City. Um, but I, I guess things may have gone south because he also apparently paid for one of his guards to enroll in her classes that she was taking to like make sure, you know, see if she was like a, you know, a little too friendly with anybody else in any of the classes. Um, just, you know, wild amounts of suspicion and just mm-hmm. wild amounts of money being thrown. I mean, just hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, on kind of, you know, traveling all around the country to different cities. You know, he, it looked like he had girlfriends in Florida and in New York and in California and just... Wow. He makes me feel like I didn't do my due diligence before I got married. <laughs> you mean to say that you didn't put a GPS tracker? I you know, I didn't, you know, put a tracker on Taylor, my wife, before we got married. But now I'm thinking, missed opportunity. <laughs> Pretty much, if you have any interaction with a reporter, they have looked up your voting record and other things, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> All right, Dawn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to continue this bribery theme, um, but with children and trick-or-treating. Although, usually, like, you get the treat and you don't do some sort of trick. But anyway, I'm talking about trick-or-treating because um, Senator Berger said they're going to be out by October 31st, which, of course, we all know is Halloween, which prompted a question from the uh, press to ask his spokesperson um, jokingly, but also we wanted to know um, what kind of uh, trick-or-treating house is the Berger household? Are they the full-size candy bar house? Uh, are they the Tootsie Roll house? What, what house are they? Um, so Burger spokesman um, came back and said that they give a variety of candy. So it's hmm. the um, one of the mixed bags. Yeah, you know. well, yeah. So you, you know the kids can pick what they want. Which um, so you know candy, candy for all. Very, I feel like so often we write headlines that say you know like something is a mixed bag. So that <laughs> right. seems very on theme. Uh, yes. <laughs> so no word on if there will be. Um, you know, candy given out at the General Assembly that day, although there is one House member that always uh, brings candy around everybody before sessions. Hey, that could be a campaign expenditure. I don't, I don't know if I can take hmm. any of that. <laughs> also, so what a politician move to give out a mixed bag of candy. Well, variety. You know, you know, everyone gets different answers. Everyone gets different candies. Okay. Shout out to Pat Ryan, though, for uh, being willing to answer even our stupid questions. Yeah, I was like, you can go find out what kind of candy <laughs> I say, st- pick so. one candy and live and die with it, even if it's bad. No, like give a variety. Don't just okay, so what, what kind of Halloween household are you, Andy? Reese's mini cups. Oh, I right. am. That's I am good. like the burgers, actually. <laughs> I um, we give a variety of candy out, and it's usually some sort of candy that I like, my husband likes, our son likes, and then um, both like the chocolate variations of stuff, and then. 
Um, kids are more into all sort of like gummy, sour, everything. And you can, I mean, the Target now just sells already the mixed bags. You don't even have to buy the bags and mix it yourself. So, um, yeah, we get a lot of stuff. And I'll let the kids take two handfuls if they want because, you mm -hmm. know, get ready for Halloween, people. Trick-or-treating is a good thing. Go door to door. You don't need to go to someone's trunk in a parking lot. Just no. saying. That's, that's my soapbox <laughs> issue. You <laughs> saw my tweets. <laughs> Well, as much as I love candy, I love political scandals more. So I'm going to go with uh, Greg Lindbergh and Robin Hayes, especially since how often do you get the head of a political party pleading guilty to lying to the FBI? So uh, Will Doran, Greg Lindbergh, and Robin Hayes all together for winners of Headliner of the They've Week. They've probably all gone trick-or-treating at some point in their Right. Life, they probably so have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Uh, tune in next week when maybe we'll have more to talk about. Who knows? Maybe there will be another gerrymandering case at this rate. Should we take bets on whether Don goes for a Halloween-themed uh, headliner again? Uh, I, I think she's know. the biggest Halloween fan in the office, <laughs> potentially. I like holidays. <laughs> uh, for Will and Don, I'm Andy. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.